Howdy, folks. This is Jimmy Aiken with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Here on Mysterious World, we've recently added video to the podcast, and we need to continue improving it with better cameras, lights, and editing, as well as continuing to produce our weekly look at the fascinating mysteries you enjoy. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you're already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you, and we ask you to consider increasing your support if you're able. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one. Every gift counts. Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas, and remember, your gifts may be tax-deductible. To find out more, just go to sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. Previously on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. In this episode, we're talking about whether there was a conspiracy in the American government that had advanced knowledge of the Pearl Harbor attack. His name was Harry Dexter White, and he was born in 1892 in Boston. In 1941, he was working as a senior official in the U.S. Treasury Department, just under the Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, Jr., he thus had one degree of separation from President Roosevelt. And why is he relevant to our story today? Because he was a mole and an agent of influence working on behalf of the Soviet Union's NKVD secret police agency, which was a predecessor to the KGB. And we know that for a fact. You're listening to episode 185 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Pearl Harbor attack, who may have known about it, and whether a Soviet spy was involved. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around for the end of the episode, as we'll have your feedback on our recent episode with physicist and parapsychologist Dr. Edwin May. But first, in late 1941, the U.S. and Japan were engaged in tense negotiations to avoid war. Those negotiations were doomed, and the U.S. would enter World War II after the December 7th attack on Pearl Harbor by Japanese forces. But who was responsible for them failing? Did President Roosevelt or his high officials make sure they failed? Was the Pearl Harbor attack really a total surprise? And what was the role of Soviet agent Harry Dexter White? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what do we need to say to begin? Like last week, this is a special crossover episode with our sister StarQuest podcast, American Catholic History. So you'll be hearing the voices of Tom and Noel Crow, the hosts of American Catholic History, who are helping us out with some of the voice work in today's episode. So be sure and check out American Catholic History. So, Jimmy, where were we in the mystery at the end of last week's episode? 
The U.S. and Japan were engaged in tense negotiations to avoid war. As we discussed, FDR wanted to get the U.S. into World War II to help Britain in Europe, but only if he could get the U.S. people behind it, which would require some kind of attack on the U.S. or its interests. FDR had given shoot-on-sight orders for German and Italian warships, so it was only a matter of time before we sunk one and then they sunk U.S. ships in return. That would give him the pretext he needed. What he did not need was a second war in the Pacific, so he had reason to be sincere in the negotiations with Japan. But the Soviet Union really wanted us to have a war with Japan so they wouldn't have to fight two wars at once, one on their western flank with Hitler and another on their eastern flank with Japan. It was at this point that Harry Dexter White entered our story. Who was he again? He was born in 1892 in Boston, and in 1941, he was working as a senior official in the U.S. Treasury Department, just under the Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, Jr. He thus had one degree of separation from the president. The president was advised by his cabinet official, Henry Morgenthau, and Morgenthau was advised by Harry Dexter White. White was an economist and a very smart man. In later years, he would help create the Bretton Woods Agreement, which regulated international finances for decades after the war. And we discussed the Bretton Woods Agreement back in episode 136 on the Great Reset. Harry White also was a key architect of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, and he was the first U.S. director of the International Monetary Fund. So he was quite a mover and a shaker. And why is he relevant to our story today? Because he was a mole and an agent of influence working on behalf of the Soviet Union's NKVD secret police agency, which was a predecessor to the KGB. And we know that for a fact because of the decryptions done of Soviet communications by the American Venona counterintelligence program. The Venona decrypts repeatedly discuss Harry Dexter White and what he did for the Soviets using various code names for him, such as jurist, lawyer, Richard, and Reed. Not Reed Richards, though. <laughs> um, he would then, I guess, be Mr. Fantastic. Yes. Uh, to be fair to him, there is a question of how on board White was with Soviet ideology. There is an argument to be made that he wasn't a dyed-in-the-wool communist and that he was instead playing a game of his own. We may discuss this in a future episode, but there is no doubt that White passed confidential and classified information to the Soviets, making him an informant or undercover mole, and there is no doubt that he used his influence in the American government to accomplish things that the Soviets wanted done, making him an agent of influence for them. And how does that relate to the attack on Pearl Harbor? As we mentioned, Russia and Japan had already fought the Russo-Japanese War in 1904 and 1905, and it did not go well for the Soviet Union. And after Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa and attacked the Soviet Union's western flank in June of 1941, the Japanese quickly prepared to attack its eastern flank. Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin was very concerned about having to fight on 
two fronts on both sides of the nation against powerful militaries, that could be an existential threat to the nation. And so the Soviets were desperate not to get into a war with Japan. And a great way to avoid that would be to get the U.S. into a war with Japan to keep it occupied and take the heat off them while they wrestled with the Nazis. Starting such a war was a project that Soviet intelligence would nickname Operation Snow, for reasons we'll see. And in May of 1941, they sent a Soviet agent named Vitaly Pavlov to contact Harry Dexter White about it. This was before Hitler had attacked Russia, but Stalin was expecting that to happen and was looking to deal with the situation in advance. Decades later, Vitaly Pavlov wrote about his interactions with Harry White in his memoirs, a hard-to-find book called Memoirs of a Spymaster, My 50 Years in the KGB. But here is how John Coster describes their meeting in his book, Operation Snow. Pavlov slid into a phone booth in Washington, D.C. and shut the door. He inserted the coins into the unfamiliar telephone, heard the clink and jangle, and dialed. The phone started to ring. He later said later that he felt time had stopped. Someone picked up at the other end. White here, the voice said. Mr. White, I'm a friend of your old friend Bill, Pavlov said. Bill is in the Far East and wants to meet with you when he comes back. He wants you to meet with me right now. Harry Dexter White was the director of the Division of Monetary Research of the U.S. Treasury Department. Bill was Iskak Abdulovich Akmerov, a Russified Tatar NKV agent, posing as an expert on China, whom White had met two years earlier. I have a pretty busy schedule, White said nervously. Pavlov was ready for this. NKVD sources had described White as a dedicated communist sympathizer and a source of information since the mid-1930s, but also as timid and rather cowardly. I'm only going to be in Washington for a few days, and it's important to Bill that you meet with me, Pavlov said. If you can give me half an hour at Old Ebbet Grill, I'll pay for the lunch. How will I know who you are? White asked. I'll try to get to restaurant a few minutes before you do, Pavlov said, sensing agreement. I'm of average height, blonde hair, and I'll be carrying a copy of New Yorker and leave it on table. All right, White said reluctantly. Pavlov had breakfast the next day with his handler, an NKVD agent known as Michael, and went over the details as they rode to the old Ebbet Grill in a Soviet embassy limousine. Michael reminded him that White was a senior official of the United States government and that Pavlov should not make any offer that included outright treason for fear of entrapment and the notoriety that entrapment might bring. Michael reminded Pavlov that he was protected by a diplomatic courier's passport, and even if White refused to help and turned him into the FBI, Pavlov himself would be safe, though with the tacit understanding that Comrade Stalin did not like people to fail. Comrade Akmarov's ideas are all compatible with the national security of the United States, Michael told Pavlov. White is already anti-fascist, so make sure to emphasize that these ideas are dictated by the need to counteract German fascism and, Itali and Japanese militarism. 
Tell him that we anticipate a Hitlerite attack on our country, and by protecting us from the aggression of Japan in the Far East, he will assist in strengthening the Soviet Union in Europe. Anything that helps bridle Japanese expansion in China, Manchuria, or Indochina would be equally useful to us and to the American interests in the Pacific region. Michael had just described to Pavlov what Soviet intelligence had codenamed Operation Snow. For the Soviet Union to be able to fend off a German attack from the West, the Japanese threat from the East would have to be neutralized. A war between Japan and the United States would achieve that goal nicely. Pavlov's job was to find a friend in the U.S. government with enough influence over American policy to subtly but effectively provoke that war. Pavlov was calm when he arrived at the old Ebbett Grill to meet White and found an empty table. He set out his copy of the New Yorker and noticed with satisfaction that he was the only blonde customer in the dining room. A few minutes later, Harry Dexter White walked in. Pavlov recognized him from Akmarov's description. Energetic, if slightly pudgy, with a small dark mustache and metal frame glasses. Pavlov took him to be t- between 35 and 40 years old, though White, in fact, was almost 50. His childlike timidity made him look younger than he was. Pavlov stood up. Mr. White? Mr. Pavlov, White replied as he walked over. I must apologize for my barbarous English, Pavlov said. I've been living in China for a long time, far from civilization. I don't believe that will prevent us from getting to know one another, White said gently. This was an ironic remark. White had tried to teach himself Russian with little success, so he understood Pavlov's problem. In Chinese and Japanese, as in Russian, there are no definite and indefinite articles, and people who translate their thoughts literally into English tend to sound rather primitive, even if the thoughts themselves are elegant or profound. Bill sends you his regards, Pavlov said. He's friend of mine, but he's actually more like an instructor whom I respect deeply. You understand. White nodded with approval. Bill has told me little bit about you, Pavlov said. He asked me for a favor, which I willingly granted. He emphasized that I should try to be very genuine and that it was impossible to postpone this meeting until he returns home and can meet you. When is Bill coming to the USA? White asked. Bill wants to come back as soon as possible, no later than end of this year, Pavlov said. He is trying to figure out the American and Japanese attitudes. The expansion of Japan into Asia has him constantly alert. This is why he asked me to meet you, only if you didn't object, to get acquainted with the idea that he's most involved with right now. Pavlov was lying. Akmarov was not in China. He was in Moscow under detention. Akmarov had broken protocol by romancing and marrying an American communist, Helen Lowry, a niece of Earl Browder, the highly visible leader of the Communist Party of the United States. Stalin's paranoid binge of executing his own followers had brought Akmarov back to Moscow to answer charges, and he'd been spared execution but put on hold. Akmarov was eagerly awaiting the results of the dialogue between White and Pavlov. I had a good impression of Bill when I met him a few couple of years ago, White said. He's obviously a very wise person. I'll be glad to listen to you. I must apologize again for my lack of English knowledge, Pavlov said with a smile. He dipped into his breast pocket and put a small folded note on the table in front of White, next to the New Yorker. White unfolded the note and read it carefully. 
His eyes betrayed astonishment and apprehension, but his mouth and breathing were under tight control as he read in an outline of Operation Snow. <sighs> I'm amazed at the concurrence of my own ideas with what Bill thinks, according to this, White gasped to explain his visible response. His pudgy face was pale. White tried to tuck the note into his own breast pocket, but when Pavlov stuck his hand out for it, he tamely gave it back. I'm going to China in a couple of days, and Bill wishes to know your opinion, Pavlov said. In fact, he is so worried whether he is going to see a management of the USA of the Japanese threat, and whether something will be done to bridle the Asian aggressor. You can tell Bill this from me, White said nervously. I'm very grateful for the ideas that corresponded to my own about that specific region. I've already started to think about what is possible and what is necessary to undertake, and I believe with the support of a well-informed expert, I can undertake necessary efforts in the necessary direction. Did you understand everything I just said? You are very grateful of ideas that correspond with your own about that specific region. You have already started to think about what is possible and what is necessary to undertake, and you believe with the help of well-informed expert, you can undertake necessary efforts in necessary direction. White nodded with satisfaction. Karasho, he said in Russian with an American accent, your memorization is very good. When Vitaly Pavlov walked out of the old Ebbet Grill, he was a made man in Soviet intelligence. He survived subsequent paranoid purges as Stalin slipped into senescence, and he later retired as a lieutenant general of the KGB. And so, according to Pavlov, Harry Dexter White became a willing participant in Operation Snow and helped set about provoking a war with Japan. And it was after this encounter that the Soviet NKVD gave the project the nickname Operation Snow because Harry White was serving as their agent of influence. How did he go about to promote the Soviet goals? In a Time Magazine article, John Coster states, From his perch in the Treasury Department, White had become closely acquainted with the key figures in FDR's administration. He knew, for instance, that Stanley Hornbeck, the State Department's expert on Asia, hated the Japanese and believed that Asians were naturally timid and easily bluffed. And White wielded enormous influence with his boss, Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau, Jr., whose personal friendship with the president made him the most powerful member of the cabinet. Skillfully manipulating Morgenthau and Hornbeck, White was able to turn U.S. policy toward Japan in an increasingly belligerent direction. Shortly after the meeting with Pavlov, still in May 1941, White drafted a memo to his boss, Henry Morgenthau, in which he went on for five pages outlining what he thought should be U.S. policy towards Japan. In an academic thesis, Tom Adams writes, White got Pavlov's message and acted on it. His memorandum to Secretary of the Treasury Morgenthau shortly after meeting Pavlov contained a pro-Soviet, anti-British slant. This memo was outwardly framed as a plan to ensure peace with the Japanese, but contained conditions that would be perceived by the Japanese population as insulting and would lead to war. Why was the opinion of ordinary Japanese people considered important? Wasn't the emperor regarded as a living god to whom they had unswerving loyalty? 
Many new listeners might think so, but no. As longtime listeners may recall from our discussion in episode 113 on the desperate coup in Japan at the end of the war, neither of those were the case. The emperor was regarded as a kami, a Japanese word meaning spirit, but which can apply even to human spirits. As a result, he was seen as an important supernatural figure, but not an infinite, infallible god like we Westerners are used to thinking of. Also, he did not command unswerving loyalty. As listeners will remember from episode 113, Japan had been racked in the 1930s and 1940s by multiple coups staged against the emperor and his government, including multiple prime ministers either being assassinated or being subject to assassination attempts, one of whom survived by hiding in a bathroom. And Emperor Hirohito himself had survived at least three known assassination attempts, including assassins from Korea, which Japan ruled at the time, and assassins from Japan itself. Wikipedia summarizes, During the 1920s and 1930s, there were three known assassination attempts on Hirohito, the emperor of Japan. The assailants were all either Korean or Japanese. Assassination attempts on Hirohito took place throughout his reign as Prince Regent and Emperor of Japan. All of their attempts failed. All four would-be assassins were sentenced to death, though one was granted amnesty and eventually released, and one committed suicide in prison. In 1923, Daisuke Namba attempted to assassinate Hirohito. Fumiko Kaneko and Pakiol both plotted to assassinate the emperor in 1925. Li Bong Cheng attempted to assassinate the emperor in 1932 in what became known as the Sakura Daman incident. So the emperor had already been subject to multiple assassination attempts, and then in 1945, at the end of the war, many of his own subordinates staged a coup against him and his government, as we covered in episode 113, to try to keep the war going. Thus, in 1941, the emperor was quite concerned about the security of his throne. If he and his officials made the wrong moves and lost too much face for Japan, it could touch off riots or even a revolution in his country. It's argued that this played a large factor in how the Japanese government reacted to the humiliating measures that the U.S. was proposing to promote peace in the Pacific, including the May Memo sent by Harry Dexter White to his boss, Henry Morgenthau, after he met with the Soviet agent Pavlov. How did that memo end up promoting a Japanese war with the U.S.? In his book, John Koster argues, White's proposed bribe and the demand that Japan lease half its naval and air forces to the United States, if made public, would have sparked riots in Tokyo and rebellion in Korea, which was under Japanese control. He had drafted a virtual declaration of war. But this supposed declaration of war didn't work, at least in May of 1941. The reason was that White had overstepped himself. He went on in Section 3 of the memorandum to try to split the Soviet Union from the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Despite Stalin's alliance with Hitler, his participation in the dismemberment of Poland 
In his infamous attack on Finland, White suggested that the United States extend a 10-year credit of $500 million to the Soviet Union, entertain up to 5,000 technical men in the United States as students or experts in our industries, and invite 50 Soviet Army and Naval attaches to participate in U.S. military maneuvers. He also urged an embargo against any country at war with Russia, Britain was the only candidate, and wanted to require that Russia place an embargo on Germany and the countries the Germans had captured a year before. Russia was then selling Germany the oil that powered the Luftwaffe's bombing of London and the U-boats that sank British and neutral ships. But after the whole world had condemned Russia for the destruction of Poland and the amputation of a large piece of Finland, Roosevelt and Morgenthau were in no mood to accommodate Stalin, still a nominal ally of Hitler and a non-combatant enemy of Britain. White's first attempt to start a preemptive war with Japan and save the Soviet Union from fighting on two fronts did not succeed. He had stumbled over FDR's affection for Britain and America's distrust of Russia and apathy toward China. So White's initial attempt to help the Soviet Union and start a war between the U.S. and Japan didn't work. As a result, events kept proceeding forward. In June of 1941, Germany attacked Russia in Operation Barbarossa, and things were going quite badly for the Soviet Union. British and American analysts expected the nation to collapse before the end of the year in the face of the Nazi onslaught. To make things worse, Stalin was now busy with a war on his Western European front, and Japan began plans to attack him on his Eastern Pacific front by invading Siberia, exactly the thing the Soviets were afraid of. To get ready for that invasion and to fuel its other activities, in July, the Japanese government negotiated a deal with the government of Vichy, France. For people who may not be aware, the Vichy government was the dictatorship that was in charge in France after the country was conquered by the Nazis. Technically, Vichy France was not a member of the Axis powers, but it was collaborating with them. Some have accused it of being a puppet government of the Nazis, but other historians have challenged that as not fully accurate. In any event, France was in control of French Indochina, which included territory represented by modern Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. And these areas had the resources that the Japanese wanted for their expansionist campaign. So they negotiated with the Vichy government to gain access to them. With the Japanese now gaining the material they needed for their program of expansion, how did the U.S. and its allies react? John Coster explains, Although Vichy France was allied with Germany, the United States and Britain both reacted to the Japanese incursion by cutting into Japan's credit. The Dutch joined in the embargo. On July 28, a Japanese tanker that showed up at the oil port of Tarakan was sent away empty. Following his highly developed political instincts, Roosevelt declined an outright embargo. Instead, he authorized a freeze on Japanese assets in the United States that would make it difficult, but not impossible, for the Japanese to purchase oil. And Harry Dexter White was involved in getting this to happen. In his academic paper, Tom Adams states, In response to Japan's apparent intransigence, Roosevelt accepted White's proposals for economic sanctions against Japan. On the 26th of July, Roosevelt implemented a full-scale economic blockade, froze Japanese assets overseas, and cut off their access to American oil. 
Japan then abandoned all plans against Siberia and firmly took the road to Pearl Harbor. So White succeeded, at least for the moment, in getting that Japanese plan to invade Siberia to be canceled. But that threat could always reemerge if they got better access to oil. White's ultimate goal of getting the U.S. into a war with Japan wasn't yet achieved, but the economic sanctions and freezing of Japanese assets so angered Japan that it made such a war much more likely. However, Japan was still trying to find a way out of the situation, and the Japanese Prime Minister Fumimaro Konoye offered to meet personally with President Roosevelt anywhere in the world the president wanted so that they could fix the situation. Unfortunately, the U.S. State Department blew him off. John Coster explains, The State Department's rebuff of Prime Minister Konoye's urgent request for a private talk with Roosevelt convinced the Japanese to begin serious plans for an attack on Pearl Harbor. At a cabinet meeting on September 6, 1941, Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto was told to attack unless Konoye somehow achieved peace terms with the United States that would not spark a revolution at home, an uprising in Korea, or the restoration of Chinese morale. Hirohito had been shot at twice, once by a Japanese communist, once by a Korean nationalist. The better men of two cabinets had been murdered or wounded because they were seen as too accommodating to the foreigners who wanted to colonize Japan or reduce the nation that had never lost a war in modern times to a vulnerable third-rate power. Roosevelt's restriction on Japan's oil supply shifted Japanese planning into high gear. War was now the only alternative to economic strangulation and political revolution. So the Japanese had two projects working on parallel tracks. The first was to get ready to attack Pearl Harbor and fight a war with the U.S., and the second was a diplomatic effort to resolve the situation and make such a war unnecessary. If the second didn't succeed, then the first would be implemented. So all Harry Dexter White needed to do was make sure that the diplomats failed to reach an agreement. Who was in charge of the diplomatic effort? Ultimately, the imperial government in Tokyo had to approve all offers, but the Japanese point man in Washington was Ambassador Kichisaburo Nomura. They also sent a special envoy to help with the negotiations, a diplomat named Saburo Kurusu, who was quite friendly towards Americans and was even married to an American woman. So the two key guys were Nomura and Kurusu. On September 6th, just three months before Pearl Harbor, they gave the U.S. government a proposal with very substantial concessions in it. Among other things, Japan promised not to invade any new territories, to withdraw from China as soon as they could arrange an armistice with the Chinese national government, and they said that if the U.S. entered the war in Europe, they would not feel bound to help the other Axis powers, essentially saying that they'd be open to leaving the U.S. alone and let it go smash Hitler. However, these terms were not accepted by U.S. diplomats, and the negotiations continued. In mid-November, just three weeks before Pearl Harbor, the Japanese proposed a temporary solution to buy time until a permanent agreement could be worked out. They agreed to pull out of southern Indochina as soon as they could get secure access to oil again, 
something the U.S. economic sanctions were preventing, and they agreed to pull out of Indochina entirely as soon as they could make peace with China. John Coster explains, Both sides stood to gain. Japan could not win a protracted war with the United States, and most Japanese wanted to get out of China with a minimum loss of face while keeping Manchuria and Korea and fending off revolution. The U.S. would avoid a war for which it was not prepared. So it was a good proposal, and for once, U.S. Secretary of State Cordell Hull agreed to explore the possibility of getting Japan's oil supply flowing again. And he was considering the possibility of a three-month truce allowing limited oil shipments to Japan for civilian rather than military use. How did Harry Dexter White respond? According to John Coster, Harry Dexter White was badly shaken. The possibility that Hull, Morgenthau's adversary, would head off a war with Japan just when everything seemed so promising was utterly vexing. Writing frantically through the night, despite an incipient heart condition, White composed from Morgenthau's signature a memorandum to the president proposing a set of demands so likely, if accepted, to incite revolution in Japan that their rejection would be assured. The next night, White wrote a second memorandum, this time under his own name. Among other things, he recommended that Japan be required to withdraw from Manchuria, a piece of territory they very much wanted to remain in. And astonishingly, he proposed that Japan be required to sell to the United States up to three-fourths of her current output of war materiel, including naval, air, ordnance, and commercial ships on a cost-plus 20% basis as the United States may select. These demands were calculated to get the Japanese government to reject the deal. Japanese industrial interests and the army were certain to reject the loss of Manchuria and the idea that Japan should be forced to sell three-quarters of its military equipment to the United States on demand was an affront to Japanese sovereignty that would have triggered revolution. White passed a copy of the memorandum along to Hull, who had been considering a three-month truce and limited oil shipments for Japanese civilian consumption. On November 26th, the Secretary of State presented the final American offer, the so-called Hull Note, to the Japanese. If Japan withdrew from China and Indochina immediately, and withdrew support for the puppet regime in Manchukuo, the United States would lift the freeze on Japanese assets. When he received the offer, Kurusu stated that the Japanese would likely throw up their hands at the demand that they withdraw from China and abandon Manchuria. The Hull Note based on White's two memoranda, was, as far as the Japanese were concerned, a declaration of war. And so the diplomatic effort had failed. And two weeks later... Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. So, Jimmy, what happened after the attack on Pearl Harbor? As a result of the attack, 18 U.S. ships were sunk or damaged, 2,008 sailors and officers were killed, and 710 were wounded. 109 Marines were killed and 69 wounded. 
the army lost 218 soldiers with 364 wounded. 68 civilians were killed and 35 wounded, all but eight of them hit by stray shells from anti-aircraft fire or by shells thrown off by exploding ships. Only one Japanese bomb fell on the city of Honolulu by mistake, but 40 Navy and Army anti-aircraft shells destroyed or damaged homes, shops, and a school, doing half a million dollars worth of damage. When the attack ended, half of the gunpower of the Pacific Fleet was at the bottom of Pearl Harbor, and the United States had not a single functional battleship in the Pacific Ocean to face the Japanese Navy. Most experts believed that if the oil tanks had exploded and torched the rest of the harbor, the United States would have lost Hawaii to Japan. For months afterward, U.S. currency issued to servicemen at Oahu was stamped Hawaii, so the Japanese could not spend it elsewhere if they overwhelmed the garrison and seized the islands. The Japanese had struck a devastating blow, and things were bad. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Matt T., Dennis W., John S., John V., and Lawrence Z. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Then let's look at the theories about Pearl Harbor. One of the common claims is that President Roosevelt either let it happen on purpose or made it happen on purpose. The commonly proposed alternative is that Pearl Harbor was a sneak attack that he wasn't expecting. What does the evidence point to here? Was it really unexpected? It depends on what you mean by unexpected. On the one hand, there's quite good evidence that American officials were expecting the Japanese to go to war if the diplomatic effort failed, which it did. People had actually been warning about Japanese militarism for years, and the whole point of the negotiations was to find a way to avoid war. So that would argue against Roosevelt having make it happen on purpose involvement if he was trying to get these negotiations to stop a war. That assumes that the negotiations with the Japanese were sincere. An alternative way of looking at them would be that they were a show that was being put on for the sake of world opinion as we lured Japan into striking first. True, but we have evidence that Roosevelt was sincere in wanting the negotiations to work. Encyclopedia Britannica states... Although there is no question that Roosevelt was concerned about public support for entering the war, this was not because he thought he could not obtain a declaration without it. In late 1941, before the Pearl Harbor attack, he had enough votes in Congress to pass a formal declaration of war. Rather, according to most historians, his concern was that Americans would not be able to sustain such an enormous effort with all its sacrifice of blood and treasure, unless they reunited in the spirit of a moral crusade. 
Accordingly, in his major foreign policy decisions regarding the war in Europe in 1940 and 41, he was careful not to commit the country to greater involvement in the fighting than public opinion would support. The draft, the destroyer bases exchange, the Lend-Lease program, convoying, and economic sanctions against Japan were all undertaken with Roosevelt's belief that the public regarded them as vital to American national security. Most historians regard these incremental decisions not as attempts to drag the country into the war, but rather as efforts by Roosevelt to exercise all other options in keeping with his deep reluctance to enter the fighting without the firm support of the American public. Although Roosevelt did admit to Churchill and Soviet leader Joseph Stalin that it would have been difficult to gain public support for war without the Japanese attack, Nevertheless, according to most historians, he actually tried to avoid a war with Japan throughout 1941, fearing that it would limit America's aid to Britain and lengthen the struggle against Germany. For example, in a discussion of the American embargo on Japan at a cabinet meeting on November 7, 1941, he said that the administration should strain every nerve to satisfy and keep on good relations with Japanese negotiators. He told Secretary of State Cordell Hall not to let the talks deteriorate and break up if you can possibly help it. Let us make no move of ill will. Let us do nothing to precipitate a crisis. And this is a plausible reading of the events. I think that personally, Roosevelt did want to get us into the war in Europe to save Britain and others from the Nazis, but he didn't want to do it without the support of the American public. And with those as his goals, he wouldn't have a motive for getting us into a war in the Pacific. The smart thing to do would be to let his shoot-on-sight orders regarding German and Italian warships to have their effect and lead us inexorably into war in Europe. That was very likely to happen, and it wouldn't make sense for him to divert precious resources into fighting a war in the Pacific. That's confirmed by private conversations he had, including the one where he told Secretary of State Hull not to provoke a crisis with Japan. This does not support make-it-happen-on-purpose involvement. If that had been his goal, he would have told Hull and other officials to do the opposite and deliberately bring about a crisis. Then how do you explain his approval of things like the Hull note, which contained Harry Dexter White's demands that appeared to be designed to cause the negotiations to break down? Unintended consequences are a real thing. People in decision-making roles don't always understand how the policies they approve will play out. We see this in politics constantly. Based on what their advisors tell them, executives and lawmakers do what they think are good ideas at the time, only to discover that they lead to things they didn't expect. I mean, just think of how many laws get written and how many policies get implemented by the U.S. government that seem to their authors to be good ideas, only to discover that they have really bad side effects. I mean, how many government programs are there that go wrong and cause more harm than good? In this case, Roosevelt had people around him, including his friend Henry Morgenthau, among others, who were telling him that this was the best way to secure peace with the Japanese. A lot of these people thought that the Japanese weren't very tough and that our Navy was so invincible that they wouldn't dare attack. 
So they thought that we were in an advantageous negotiating position and could make demands like this. And Roosevelt listened and happened to believe them. What about let it happen on purpose involvement? Once the negotiations broke down, it would have been obvious that Japan was going to strike. Did Roosevelt simply throw up his hands and let it happen on purpose at that point? This is more ambiguous than you might think. Just because Japan was going to strike somewhere didn't mean that they knew they were going to attack Pearl Harbor. It didn't even mean that they were going to attack the U.S. In fact, as their fleet was proceeding to Pearl Harbor under radio silence, we detected the fact that they had a different fleet proceeding to Thailand. So it looked like they were going to strike, but not Pearl Harbor. Instead, they were headed to Thailand to get more resources for their war effort. And Thailand was far from the only place they might strike. Encyclopedia Britannica explains, Roosevelt and his advisors did foresee a Japanese military action on December 6-7. to Nevertheless, most historians agree that they did not know where the attack would come. Intercepted Japanese diplomatic and military messages indicated an attack somewhere, but information suggesting that the target would be British, Dutch, or French possessions in the Southeast Asia obscured other information suggesting Pearl Harbor. Moreover, as most historians point out, it is implausible to think that Roosevelt, a former assistant secretary of the Navy, would have exposed so much of the U.S. fleet to destruction at Pearl Harbor had he known an assault was coming. If his only purpose was to use a Japanese attack to bring the United States into the war, he could have done so with the loss of just a few destroyers and some airplanes. In fact, he was genuinely surprised by the target, if not the timing, of the Japanese attack. According to one scholar, Roberta Wallstetter, this was partly the consequence of a tendency among U.S. military leaders to see the fleet in Hawaii as a deterrent rather than a target. It was also the result of a failure by U.S. military intelligence to measure Japanese capabilities accurately. The Americans did not believe that Japanese air and naval forces could mount a successful attack on U.S. bases in Hawaii. So it's claimed Roosevelt and his advisors thought that the Japanese were too weak to stage an attack on Pearl Harbor, leading them to think that they would strike somewhere else, like Thailand. Weren't there people who warned specifically that there would be an attack on Pearl Harbor? Actually, yes, there were quite a few people who did so. John Koster's book details a bunch of early warnings that Pearl Harbor would be the target. One of my favorite examples is of a Korean man living in the U.S. named Kilsu Han, who warned U.S. officials repeatedly that the Japanese would strike Pearl Harbor. In fact, at the end of August, he wrote President Roosevelt a letter to directly warn him August 29, 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, White House, Washington, D.C. Dear Mr. President Roosevelt, As one who represents the Korean underground in America, as the one who on January 8, 1941, wrote you from Los Angeles, California, the information contained in Japan's war plan book, Three Power Alliance and the U.S.-Japanese War, that at the opening of the U.S.-Japanese War, Japan will call for peace negotiations, and during these peace talks, Japan is to carry out the surprise attack upon Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. May I sincerely appeal to you not to trust the Japanese ambassador Nomura. 
I have learned that in July, Your Excellency, Mr. President, had proposed to Nomura that America and England will supply Japan's need of oil, gasoline, scrap irons, and essential food supplies if Japan get out of French Indochina and acknowledge the neutrality of French Indochina. As long ago as April 1933, I informed Secretary of War Dern, George Dern, Roosevelt's first Secretary of War, the U.S.-Japan war is inevitable, hence the July proposal by Mr. President to Ambassador Nomura is of no use to America, whereas it will encourage the Japanese emperor and his military advisors to implement Japan's war plan, the surprise attack on Hawaii. Please cease fooling yourself and be prepared for war. Respectfully, Kilsu Han. I love that. Please cease fooling yourself and be prepared for war. Han even had a rather dramatic encounter in a restaurant just four days before the Pearl Harbor attack. On the night of December 3, 1941, I could not fall asleep. I went to the Chinese chop suey house, the Chinese lantern, and ordered a bowl of Chinese soup called wonton. This was 11.45 p.m. when I got there. Next to my table, a Japanese was trying to sell a Chinese a second-hand automobile. After the Japanese left, the Chinese said to me, You like to buy cheap automobile? After a pause, he said, this Japanese is selling four automobiles owned by the Japanese embassy workers because they are going to Japan pretty soon. When I asked the Chinese what price he wants, he replied, oh, so cheap. The Japanese reportedly offered to sell a 1941 Buick sedan for $1,000, a 1940 Buick coupe for $750, and a 1941 Buick coupe for $850. So employees of the Japanese embassy were selling their cars because they would be going back to Japan now that the negotiations had been broken off and war was imminent. Han then wrote a really snarky letter to Ambassador Nomura, who years earlier had lost an eye when he was attacked by a Korean national. December 3, 1941. Your Excellency, I note that the embassy staff members are trying to sell their automobiles. May I make the following offer? I hereby submit $10 as an offer for the automobiles you have for sale. I am sure this offer is a justified one in the moral sense, since you have witnessed the Japanese international gangsterism in China and Korea, which succeeded in looting millions of dollars worth of properties from Koreans and the Chinese. You would not miss it very much if you would accept our offer. If and when you do let me have them for $10, I would have them auctioned for the benefit of the refugees, the victims of Japanese aggression in China and Korea. At least, you would be thankful that I would be in a position to do this much for those helpless men and women, and particularly the relatives of the Korean who threw the bomb in Shanghai which resulted in the loss of your eye. Very sincerely yours, Kilsu K. Han. Zing, what a burn. I'll buy your embassy cars for 10 bucks and then auction them for the benefit of the victims of your aggression, including the relatives of the Korean who threw the bomb that caused you to lose your eye. Ouch. Oh, man. So what success did Han have with his warnings? Unfortunately, not much. Presidents don't read all the letters they're sent, and Han was only able to meet with lower-level officials who mostly shrugged off his warnings as anti-Japanese hysteria. 
Since he was a member of the Korean underground, it was easy to dismiss things he said because of his passionate hatred for his nation's Japanese rulers. And as we said, U.S. officials tended to think that Japan really wasn't in a position to attack the Hawaiian Islands. Haven't there been reports that U.S. officials knew decoded Japanese transmissions and learned of the attack on Pearl Harbor yet did nothing to warn our military? There have, and there were various Japanese codes that we had broken. But it would get rather involved to go through the issues surrounding which particular messages we had decoded before the attack, what they indicated, who knew about them, and what was done in response. As a result, we're only going to look at one particular message that was decoded immediately before the attack and that President Roosevelt did know about. The Japanese strategy was to disable the U.S. fleet in the Pacific, grab a bunch of territories really quick, and then negotiate an early peace with the United States. To lay the groundwork for that future negotiated peace, they wanted to deliver a formal declaration of war to the U.S. before the attack happened. That way, they would be observing the diplomatic niceties that nations are supposed to go through when starting a war as opposed to staging a sneak attack that will only further enrage the country you're, you're attacking, making negotiations harder. John Coster explains, Intent on behaving in such a way as to make an early peace possible, the Japanese embassy had proposed to issue a formal declaration of war in Washington a half hour before the actual attack on Pearl Harbor. The declaration had been postponed until the last few hours in the vain hope that something would head off a catastrophic war. Mitsuo Fuchida, the Japanese flight commander, had strict orders not to drop the first bombs before 8 o'clock a.m., as he revealed in a confidential memoir hidden in a safe in his son's New Jersey home until everyone concerned had died. Tokyo sent a 14-part encoded message to its embassy in Washington, informing its diplomats that the decision for war had been made. American decoders were on duty all night, so the White House knew about the message before the embassy did. As he read the 13th part of the decoded message, Roosevelt turned to his alter ego, Harry Hopkins, and said bluntly, This means war. When the final part of the war message arrived at the Japanese embassy, the typists had all gone home, and the diplomats themselves, horrified by the prospect of war, had gotten so drunk the night before that they could not get the declaration of war typed in time. Kurusu and Nomura dropped it off with Secretary of State Cordell Hall as the planes were returning to their carriers from the smoking wreckage of the Pacific Fleet. So the Japanese diplomats were so horrified by the impending prospect of war that they got drunk, preventing them from getting the message typed in time to deliver it before the Pearl Harbor attack. And the declaration of war wasn't delivered until afterward. But the key thing for our purpose is that U.S. officials, including President Roosevelt, had decoded the message before the attack and knew about it. President Roosevelt is on record as having stated that this meant war with Japan. But neither he nor anybody else in the White House phoned the military officials in Pearl Harbor to tell them to get ready. Is that evidence of let it happen on purpose involvement? That Roosevelt knew the attack was coming and didn't do anything to counter it? It's true that he knew the attack was coming, but he still didn't know where it would be. 
Pearl Harbor is not mentioned anywhere in the 14-part message, so Roosevelt didn't know where it would be coming. As a result, there wasn't reason to warn Pearl Harbor specifically. They could have warned everybody they had in the Pacific, but they thought they'd done this. They'd already sent out general warnings about the possibility of a Japanese strike, though they didn't know where it would be, so they thought people were on the alert. Of course, if they had known it was going to be Pearl Harbor, and if they had given Pearl Harbor a specific warning, then our forces there would have been ready and could have survived the attack much better. But between not knowing where the attack would be aimed and with the thinking that the Japanese couldn't mount an effective attack on Pearl Harbor, they didn't send a warning there. So if you want to propose let it happen on purpose involvement, I think this is a key piece of data. It is possible that at this late date and a nine o'clock at and at nine o'clock at night when he read the message, it's possible that Roosevelt kind of threw up his hands and said, "Well, if it's going to happen, we may as well let it come." That would at least be a minor form of let it happen involvement. But it's also possible that it wasn't as willful as that, and that Roosevelt and his officials just didn't think to inform Pearl Harbor not knowing where the attack would be, thinking they'd already warned everybody sufficiently and that the Japanese couldn't pull off an effective strike there and so would go after somewhere more vulnerable, like our bases in the Philippines. The situation can be read either way, but my own inclination is to attribute governmental screw-ups more to incompetence than to malice. And the outcome of the Pearl attack was not what President Roosevelt was expecting. John Coster explains, When the news about Pearl Harbor reached Washington, President Roosevelt was thunderstruck, not because he was surprised by the attack itself, but because the attack had been far more dreadful than anything the administration had expected. Secretary of Labor Francis Perkins, who saw him at a cabinet meeting that day, said that Roosevelt could hardly bring himself to describe the devastation. His pride in the Navy was so terrific that he was having actual physical difficulty in getting out the words that put him on the record as knowing that the Navy was caught unawares. So Roosevelt definitely did not expect the devastation that Japanese forces wrought on Pearl Harbor. Like others, he thought they weren't in a position to mount that kind of devastating strike. And when he learned the contrary, he was so choked up, he couldn't even speak properly. That's a strong argument that if he thought this was possible and knew Pearl was the target, he would have warned our forces there. And that's an argument that he wasn't deliberately willing this to happen. Even if President Roosevelt wasn't complicit in the Pearl Harbor attack, that doesn't let Harry Dexter White off the hook. No, it does not. We know White was a Soviet asset and agent of influence. Based on the evidence we have, he had received orders to try to get the U.S. into a war with Japan to take the heat off Stalin, and he undertook courses of action that led to that happening. That looks like Harry Dexter White didn't just have let it happen on purpose involvement, but make it happen on purpose involvement. So, if, even if Roosevelt wasn't complicit in the attack, Harry Dexter White was, and in a particularly evil way. Even if we needed to get into the war in Europe, 
causing an unnecessary war in the Pacific and all the American and Japanese and other men, women and children killed in it, including the first use of atomic bombs to destroy cities, was evil. And Harry Dexter White's actions led to that. Okay, that brings us then to the faith perspective. What can we say about the Pearl Harbor attack on both the Japanese and American sides from the faith perspective? There is such a thing as a just war, and the church has worked out the conditions that need to be fulfilled for a war to be just. On the one hand, in the case of Japan, they intended to give us at least some notice that we were at war. They intended to deliver a declaration of war first, but the fact that the diplomats were quaking in their boots and got drunk the night before when the message came in prevented this from happening. On the other hand, I'm not an expert in the situation at the time, so I hesitate to judge whether the attack on Pearl Harbor would have been subjectively morally justified from the Japanese perspective, given what they believed or knew. Uh, but people in the Japanese government and military had different opinions about whether they should go to war with us, and I hesitate to judge their hearts. On the gripping hand, Japan was engaged in an overall campaign of military expansion and invading its neighbors, and this was not justified. It does not appear that there were any factors justifying this kind of naked aggression on other peoples. And so I tend to concur with Kilsu Han that this was international gangsterism and that the complex of military campaigns Japan was involved in were, as a whole, not just wars, including the attack on the U.S. What about applying the faith perspective to the Americans involved? Having make it happen or let it happen on purpose involvement in the Pearl Harbor attack would be prima facie evil. I'm open to hearing a case made for these, but on its face, it seems obviously wrong to have either kind of involvement, which is why people have such a negative reaction to these ideas. However, it doesn't appear that Roosevelt and most of his officials were complicit in this way with the exception of Harry Dexter White, whose make-it-happen involvement was evil. And the same would apply to any other Soviet assets that worked with White or in parallel to White elsewhere in the government and who we may not have discovered. Before we go, I want to ask an alternate history question. Some could say that even if malfeasance on the part of some in America led to the attack on Pearl Harbor, it was still a good thing that it happened so that we got into World War II and beat the Axis powers. The war wasn't going well for the British. Europe could have fallen under Nazi control. Parts of Africa could have fallen under Nazi and Italian fascist control. And East Asia could have fallen under totalitarian Japanese control. What do you make of that argument? It has a surface plausibility, but we need to be careful with any kind of alternative history what-if argument. The truth is that we know only what happened in our own timeline, and that imperfectly. We do not know what would have happened on other timelines. We can estimate and guess, but we don't know. Former government official and political commentator Pat Buchanan has argued that it would have been better if we'd stayed out of World War II entirely. In his view, once Hitler turned on Stalin, Germany and the Soviet Union would have annihilated each other, sparing the world the experience of the Cold War. 
That's an interesting claim, though people may or may not find it plausible. On the other hand, even if Japan had not attacked Pearl Harbor, it's very possible that Roosevelt's shoot-on-sight policy regarding German and Italian warships would have gotten us into the war within a few months anyway. In that case, we would have been able to fight in Europe with all our force directed there, leading to an earlier end to World War II and sparing many lives, and sparing us the war in the Pacific and the moral stain of having bombed civilians with atomic weapons. So there's an argument that it would have been better if Pearl Harbor did not happen. Ultimately, we have to leave what happens in divergent timelines and how to, how to evaluate them in God's hands. As they say in the military, it's above our pay grade. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on this question of Pearl Harbor? When it comes to Roosevelt and most of the officials in his administration, I don't see evidence that they had make-it-happen-on-purpose involvement in Pearl Harbor. It's possible that they may have had let-it-happen-on-purpose involvement, but the evidence I've seen for this is not particularly strong. On the other hand, we do have evidence that Harry Dexter White and possibly other Soviet assets in the U.S. did have make-it-happen-on-purpose involvement. And by the way, there's more to the story of Harry Dexter White than we've covered here, and we're likely to look at the rest of his story in a future episode. Before we go, I want to thank Tom and Noel Crow of American Catholic History for doing the voice work in today's episode. American Catholic History is a weekly podcast in which Tom and Noel tell us about some part of Catholic history in the U.S. in 15 minutes or so, starting with, say, the first Spanish missionaries sometime in the 1500s up through today. They tell the stories of the people and places, not just the saints, but also ordinary Catholics who have made interesting contributions to our history. So check it out at sqpn.com slash history or wherever fine podcasts are found. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener and viewer on this topic? We'll have a link to the American Catholic History Podcast, so you can check it out. Also, John Coster's book, Operation Snow, uh, the a master's thesis by Tom Adams that we referred to called The Trial of Harry Dexter White. Also, Coster's Time Magazine article, information uh, on the Pearl Harbor Advanced Knowledge Theory, Encyclopedia Britannica's Backdoor to War article. Uh, information about Harry Dexter White himself on assassination attempts on Emperor Hirohito, the Hull Note uh, F video of the FDR speech that we've heard from, and also uh, the text of the Japanese 14-part message that they tried to get to us before Pearl Harbor but didn't succeed. So you can read for yourself exactly what they said in it. Excellent. So as we mentioned at the top of the episode, we have this week your mysterious feedback on Jimmy's interview with physicist and parapsychologist Dr. Edwin May. Uh, and I also want to remind you that you can now submit feedback on our mysterious feedback line. You could call 619-738-4515 and leave a voicemail with your audio feedback. And as we've said several times, audio feedback gets to the front of the line. So if you want to get your feedback on the show. So, Jimmy, let's start with a piece of feedback, a comment we got on Facebook from Jimmy James RV, who says, great interview, Jimmy. 
Thank you. And I want to thank Jimmy James because he's a remote viewer in upstate New York that knows Edmund May. And it was him who arranged the interview uh, because a few years ago, Dr. May retired from giving interviews. But uh, Jimmy James is a fan of Mysterious World and appreciates the work we do and thought it would be good for us to have the opportunity to uh, talk with Dr. May. And he arranged that. So I want to say a very special thanks to him. Excellent. Uh, Chad on Facebook wrote, great interview. As I've said before, I really would like to hear Jimmy's take on the issue of how much cognitive function arises from wetware, as Dr. May said, and how that relates to the Aristotelian concept developed by Aquinas of the tripartite soul. With a background in biophysics and philosophy, I've given lots of thought to the issue. It used to scare me to think that functional MRI had disproven the notion of the eternal soul, but then deeply studying the Catechism, 1 Corinthians 15, and Revelations 21 helped me to reconcile my faith and cognitive neuroscience. Radical atheists like Crick have tried to claim that brain science disproves an immaterial soul, but I think evidence and biblical scholarship like that by N.T. Wright helped us set that claim aside. We'll definitely be looking at uh, this in the future. There's actually a little brief mention of it in, I believe it's one of the upcoming parts of my interview with Dr. May, um, uh, where we talk not about his career, but about his parapsychological research, where I mention, at least in passing, a theory that um, the brain that has been proposed, that the brain is actually a transducer for... um, higher non-physical things. A transducer is a device that turns one form of energy into another, like the uh, microphone in your cell phone turns the energy of your voice, which is kinetic energy passing through the air. It transduces that into electrical energy that can then be sent through the phone system. And then the speaker on someone else's cell phone is another transducer that turns that electrical energy back into kinetic audio energy so that people can hear it. And so transducers show up all over the place, including in the human body. That's what our ears are. They're sound transducers. Our eyes are transducers. All of our senses are transducers. And there's a theory that maybe our central nervous system, our brain, is a transducer for what's going on with our souls. So that's a possibility. There are other theories as well, and we'll definitely be talking about them in future episodes. In fact, interestingly, uh, Bob Bigelow, the uh, aerospace uh, tycoon and hotel tycoon that has funded a lot of uh, parapsychological and UFO research, recently announced a set of prizes. He spent uh, almost $2 million on an essay contest Uh, for people who could make the best argument for the existence of life after death. And we'll be talking about the results of that on in future episodes of Mysterious World. Excellent. Uh, Charles 22 uh, wrote on YouTube, Jimmy, just curious, not being a smoker and all, but why keep so many pipes on a shelf? Sentimental value? Well, um, so I'm a pipe collector uh, and, you know, People collect different things, typically because they appreciate aspects of them. Like I'm not, a, for example, a model car collector or a train collector. But my understanding is that people who collect, say, model cars and model trains, the, the reason they collect different ones is because they have different features. 
um, that they like, you know, different, like this car is a different color. It's based after a famous actual car. It has certain features I like. Maybe it's, um, maybe it can be driven around robotically or something. And so people who collect anything tend to collect it because of the different features that things have. So since I'm a pipe smoker and I also appreciate the artistry of pipe making, I have different pipes that have different um, characteristics, different colors, different stem types, different shapes, different finishes, and so forth. And uh, pipe smoking, there's a benefit to switching out your pipes as you smoke, right? Yes, indeed. And also they, you know, they, uh, like anything, as you use them, they wear over time. And so you need to get new ones, but you don't want to throw away your old favorites. No, no. Uh, Noreen writes on Facebook, very interesting stuff. I'm old enough to remember when remote viewing was in the mainstream news. Fascinating interview. And I cannot help but think of new moms and their sensitivity to their baby's needs as part of this other sense, like waking up just before baby makes a sound. Yeah. Um, and that's something we will be discussing in future episodes, the role of subconscious precognition, where even though you're not trying, you may... For example, wake up just before the, you need to get ready to do something for the baby. And that uh, kind of subconscious precognition actually is very prominent in the thought of uh, Dr. May, as we'll hear in the future episodes with him. Uh, one of his characteristic theories is that all information based uh, psychic phenomena. So this would exclude like large scale telekinesis. But um, but all information based uh, psychic psychic functioning, including remote viewing and precognition and retrocognition and uh, things like that, may all be explained as simply forms of precognition. Cool. Uh, Daniel writes on Facebook. This is awesome. Can't wait for the next interview. Thank you very much. Uh, looking forward to uh, airing those as well, though. Uh, wanted to space them out a bit so that the schedule doesn't get too heavy on any one particular topic in a short space of time. Uh, RV on YouTube writes, excellent interview, class act. Thank you very much. Uh, Daz Smith on YouTube also writes, nice interview, thanks. And thank you, Daz. Uh, uh, Daz is another uh, prominent figure in the remote viewing community. He's uh, from the United Kingdom, and he's published a number of books and uh, lots of videos, and he's very active in the uh, online remote viewing community. And I wanted to thank him in particular, uh, since I know him a little bit. So thank you, Daz. Martin wrote on YouTube, thank you very much for this intriguing interview. As you see it, could there possibly be any risks of opening some room in oneself for demons via remote viewing per se, not spiritism, given that RV uses spiritual extrasensorial channels? In your assessment, is RV allowed by current church teaching? So um, this is a question that uh, that we periodically get. And, you know, we have the two tongue in cheek sayings on the show. It's always aliens and it's always demons, because those are the first things that occur to people when trying to explain something mysterious. We're actually going to be doing an upcoming episode on the demon hypothesis. It's episode 188. It will be the first new episode airing in January. And we're going to look at the question of when are demons involved and when are not? Now, the truth is life involves risk. And, you know, there are bears out there in the world. And if you go out in the world, you could get attacked by a bear. But that doesn't mean they're so common 
that you need to worry about opening yourself up to bear attacks. And in the same way, there are demons out there in the world, but that doesn't mean they're lurking under every rock and that you need to constantly worry about opening yourself up to demon attacks. Now, if you go into the woods and you carry food with you that bears can smell and you're in a high bear activity area, yeah, you could be inviting bear attack. And if you deliberately start invoking spirits, you don't know what spirits are going to show up. And so, yeah, in that case, you could be opening yourself to some kind of demonic thing. But if that's not what you're doing, if you're not going into a bear infested area, you're not really opening yourself up to bear attacks. And if you're not openly invoking spirits of some kind, which remote viewers are not when they're using the standard remote viewing protocols, then you're not inviting demons in. And so you wouldn't expect demons to come in any more than you would in any other area of life because you're not asking them to. So, but we'll cover all that more in episode 188 coming up in January. Cormac Crisp on YouTube, he gets right to the point, Jimmy. He says, Jimmy, do you think that you have the abilities to remote view? Well, um, according to... According to the the advocates of remote viewing, everybody has some ability unless maybe they're, you know, like there are blind people occasionally who don't have the faculty of sight. But normally everybody has some degree of sight and some people have better eyesight than others. And so the claim is similarly for remote viewing. Everybody has some ability that they could learn to do. Some people would be better than others. Um, there is some indication based on character. Now, I'm not a trained remote viewer. But there are some, there is some indication based on characteristics that I have, including synesthesia, which is a kind of cross connection between different sensory modalities that a lot of really good remote viewers are known to have. There's some indication that if I were trained, I might be above average at it. Uh, that's something that actually comes up in um, in one of the future interviews with Dr. May. And and so it's something that's interesting. But like I said, I'm. I'm not trained, and so I don't know what my actual ability would be, assuming, of course, that the reports are accurate and that remote viewing is an example of real psychic functioning. Hmm. Uh, Todd writes on YouTube, do you believe that remote viewing could suggest that consciousness is not as much in your brain as it is a connection to a collective? I think that remote viewing may provide evidence, and Dr. May would disagree with this, but I think that um, that remote viewing may provide evidence that consciousness is not purely physical and that there is more to the world than just physical matter. But I don't know that I would see remote viewing as providing evidence for a collective consciousness, because even though, um, I mean, like if you just think in terms of ordinary people, you know, well, you can communicate with them verbally. And maybe you could communicate and you can look at them with your eyes, but that doesn't mean you're part of a collective consciousness or a collective physical system with them, except, I mean, we're still distinct individuals. And in the same way, uh, if psychic functioning is real, well, maybe you could communicate with someone telepathically, just like you can communicate verbally. And maybe you could look at them with remote viewing, just like you could look at them with your eyes. But that wouldn't imply any kind of collective consciousness any more than it would imply than the physical reality. You can communicate and look at people physically implies that you're part of the same physical thing. 
Uh, Absurd Scandal on YouTube writes, with regard to David Roll's revision of Egyptian chronology being a bit fringe, what about the Centuries of Darkness collection where several historians propose a similar revision, only a bit less radical than Roll himself? I've read how Roll's project isn't really that fringe in light of this. What do you think of that in particular, Jimmy? I am always open to, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of uh, of doing uh, historical chronology. It, I, I love doing it. I've devoted a lot of time uh, to this subject and to studying it. And I am always open to arguments, but I don't think the ones proposed by David Roll and his associates are successful um, these days. Now, at one point in time, before the advent of modern computers, it it made more sense to propose larger shifts in the time scale for cultures like ancient Egypt than it does now. But now that we have computers, it's it's possible to correlate large amounts of data in a way that makes the timeline much more precise. Uh, this is based around finding what are known as synchronisms. A synchronism is something known to have coexisted at the same two things known to have coexisted at the same times. So, for example, if we know that Ramesses the second lived at the same, the Pharaoh lived at the same time as some Hittite ruler, then we can say, okay, they, they must have lived at the same time and we can, and that, so that's a synchronism. And we can then look through all of the ancient literature of the Egyptians and the Hittites and the other surrounding cultures and figure out what things were coexistent in the same time with each other, what things were in synchrony with with each other. And then we can use a computer to take all those hundreds and hundreds of synchronisms and build a timeline out of them. And this exceeds the capacity of what humans could do just looking at a few literary records and trying to piece them together mentally. So the modern computer synchronism based uh, timelines are much more precise than the ones we had in the past. And um, and so I don't think that David Rawls arguments succeed. If you'd like further information on synchronisms and how timelines like that are constructed as well as responses to alternative timelines for Egypt, please do check out uh, Dr. David Falk's channel on YouTube called Ancient Egypt and the Bible, where he has videos directly addressing these subjects. Excellent. Uh, Lenny Bear writes on YouTube, fascinating episode, and the word of the day is patronym. Jimmy and, and Tom. Patronym, I should explain, is uh, where you're named after your father, like Simon Bar Jonah means right. Simon, son of Jonah. Uh, Jimmy and Dom, the show keeps hitting new highs. The video adds another dimension. Please keep it coming. P.S. Here's to hitting 100,000 subscribers. Thank you. And as you can see in this very episode, we're trying to uh, up our video game even further. We've got some wonderful assistance uh, coming from some fans of Mysterious World, the Bears, and we really appreciate it. And uh, we also are looking forward to channel growth. So we're working our way currently for YouTube.com slash Jimmy Aiken to get to 100,000. 
Uh, very much looking forward to that. So thank you for coming to the channel and for liking, subscribing, and hitting the bell notification so that you get uh, notifications whenever we have additional videos uh, on the channel. So that way you don't miss anything. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and everyone, thank you for your feedback. That was fantastic. So, Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? We have a Vikings in America theme. Uh, now, back in the 1960s, there was a famous map, allegedly from the 1400s, before the time of Columbus, that's referred to as the Vinland map. Vinland was apparently, it was supposed to be one of the names for America that Vikings had used because vines grew there. So it was called Vinland. And uh, this map stimulated a lot of discussion. And now we know it's a fake. So we'll have an article to how they figured out that it's actually a 20, 20th century forgery. But lest you get discouraged about Vikings in America before Columbus, there's another new story. Um a sunstorm that occurred in the year 1021, so exactly 1,000 years ago this year, 1021, shows that Vikings were making settlements in North America in that year, almost 500 years before Columbus. And the way they know that, and the way a solar storm showed it, is when a solar storm occurs, it throws off, um, it, it throws off um, charged particles. Um, that can uh, get into the Earth's atmosphere and that can get into wood. And so by doing an analysis of the wood, you can see, oh, there was a solar storm occurring at this time. And we know and we can uh, tell when the solar storm occurred. So um, they dated some wood from a Viking settlement in Canada, and they found that it, it the wood was uh, uh, was around in the year uh, 1021. That's when it was being worked. And so we know that Vikings were in America working wood and building settlements in 1021. May have been here earlier, but we know they were here at least that early. Excellent. Great headlines. All right. Well, that's it from us. What are your theories about the Pearl Harbor advanced knowledge theory and whether Harry Dexter White deliberately steered the U.S. into war on behalf of his Soviet contacts? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, or calling 619-738-4515. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week is Christmas, so we'll be doing a Christmas editions of Weird Questions, and we'll be covering topics like celebrating Christmas on other planets, when the Christmas season actually ends, whether the carol, the 12 days of Christmas, is really written in a secret code, how we got from St. Nicholas to Santa Claus, and more. Excellent. Folks, follow Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or on our YouTube channel where you should hit the bell to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Fear Vento Law PLLC 
specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit FearVentoLaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>